I don't know how often you notice or pay attention to the stained glass behind me above the baptistry. Uh, I'll tell you that I, I probably don't notice it enough, but it is pretty significant. I don't know if you know that, uh, that stained glass is designed to be, it's meant to be more than just churchy decoration. Uh, it's there to provide more than just a little bit of color for the space, right? The goal of stained glass windows is to remind us why we are here. Take this one in particular. The one right behind me has at its center the cross of Jesus Christ, reminding us that the reason we are here is because Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we might know the living God, so that we may be in relationship with him. And then when you look down, I don't know if you ever noticed, on the left side of that cross, there are blood drops that are dripping down off of that onto that cluster of grapes. And the grapes and wheat there represent the Lord's Supper in which uh, Jesus instituted this new covenant where you and I get to be a part of his new chosen covenant people that we celebrate in communion each week. And then you have up top the dove, which represents the Holy Spirit that gave birth to the church all the way back in Acts 2, and that same Holy Spirit sustains his church and seals his church, that's us, to this day. And you have the waters of baptism that marked our entry into the people of God, and you even have those two little fish down there that remind us of Jesus' ability to provide food for 5,000 people with just two fish and five loaves of bread, representing his abundant provision for his people. And every one of those symbols up there are a reminder of God's good gifts to us in bringing us to himself. That's what they're there for. They, They show us, they tell us that we do not come here on a Sunday morning because we're good people, and that's what good people do every week. They remind us that that we don't come here to be good people. No, we come here because Jesus himself is good and because he has made broken, sinful people like you and I righteous in his sight, able to come together as his people. And so, if you walk through those doors this morning with this feeling in your heart that you are not good enough to be here, I have good news for you. You are welcome because of the blood of Jesus, into this gathering, not just to worship, but he invites you into his family, and I hope that you will seek that. If you came through these doors and you did not have a particularly good week, the good news for you is this, that you are here to worship and fellowship with a very good God this morning. If you came in here and you felt like you've just got nothing left to give because you're completely spent, the good news for you is that you are not the primary gift giver in this relationship. That we, as the church, are first and foremost those who have received. Received mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. And that is what we show up to do here first this morning. We have an opportunity to do that actually right now. And so I invite you to take the posture of receiving as we open up and receive God's word spoken to us this morning. It's another big one. Acts 27, all the way through the first 10 verses of chapter 28. But it's a good one. It's, it's got a lot of action in it. So it's kind of fun to read and listen to. So go ahead and turn there with me as we read. <clears throat> this is coming right on the heels of Paul's trial before Festus and Agrippa, and it's been determined that he will be sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And so Luke, who is with Paul at this time, writes these words, Acts 27, verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, 
They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andromidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and in fearing that they would run, around, run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. And therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of the Lord. So that is what Jesus meant when he said, and you will go to Rome. I doubt if that's what Paul was probably thinking. So you said, I'm going to go to Rome. How am I going to get there? How long is the journey going to take? Will it be difficult? Jesus said, you will go to Rome. The angel said, you will testify in Rome. Never once, as far as we know, did he ever mention shipwrecks or storms. It doesn't mention 14 days without eating. Uh, there's absolute no mention of snakes biting him. But all of this is covered in that statement. You must testify in Rome. And honestly, I don't even know if Paul asked. I don't, I don't even know if Paul ever once said, listen, like, I'm willing to go, but can you tell me a little bit of what it's going to be like and what the journey's going to be and how long it's going to take? Imagine if I said, hey, would you like to come with me to Rome? And those are all the details I gave you. 
Man, no, you're a planner. You want to know well in advance all that's going to happen. And yet it seems in the Bible that when God calls people, he calls them to leave and go to the land to which I will show you. He calls them to come and to, uh, to be anointed as king over Israel. He calls them to be a prophet and to boldly speak against the prophets of Baal. He calls them into the wilderness so that they might baptize the many. He calls them to leave behind their little fishing business so that they might become fishers of men. He asks them to leave a tax collecting booth. And I bet you it was like April 14th when he asked them, you know. And he asks Paul, Saul, to leave everything that he had and to abandon it and to follow him. And I just, I don't know of much, if anything, the details are usually, oh yeah, and for the record, it's going to be very, very difficult, like it always is. This is a reoccurring theme that we see repeatedly, not only in the Bible, but particularly in these last few chapters of the book of Acts. And, and I was wondering about the, the life of the Apostle Paul. He, he's clearly one of my, my favorite characters that we read about in the Bible. And sometimes I can forget that he is also a real person. Like he's not just like a figment. He's not a, uh, this isn't like uh, Romeo and Juliet where there's just a, it's just a character. Um, you know, have you ever like you watch a TV show? Andrew and I are watching all these different TV. We get, we got, it's one of the things we really love to do or watch really interesting shows with like really interesting characters. Um, and she laughs at me because she's got this amazing ability to watch a show. But I, I'm right in the middle of it. You know, I'm really worried about this person's spouse who hasn't been around for two or three episodes and I'm just wondering how they're doing. And Andrea likes to remind me, well, you know they're not real, right? Like they're probably on some other episode on another, as another person on another show, right? Well, I just, I mean, she has not called him in months. <laughs> but like Bible characters can be like that, can't they? And I, I want to be careful. Pastors love um, playing games with the text, and I got to be careful doing that. But um, I, I think it's fair to say that it would be an interesting um, thought process. Looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, because we have one more week in Acts. He's gone from the Damascus Road to lots of different places, and he's going to be in Rome very shortly. He'll land there next week. And yet his life has taken on so many turns. And he spent a lot of extra time in Jerusalem I'm in prison, and I couldn't help but wonder if anyone from that old Pharisee school ever just stopped by to check in on him to go, dude, you really made the wrong choice with this career change. Paul talks about it in the book of Philippians chapter 3, all that he had done. I'm a student of Gamaliel. I'm zealous. Um, he was the one that was there giving approval of Stephen's death. He is the one that seems to be the up-and-coming and he like walked away from it all just for a life of difficulty and hardship. And I just couldn't help, did anybody just stop, you know, from back in the Pharisee school days, just to stop by and go like, listen, Saul, I know you changed your name to Paul, but I, I'm just, I can't get used to the new name. I'm just going to call you Saul. 
And I just want you to look at your life. Like, it's moments like this. All I want us to do is think, how did we get here? Like, isn't this what responsible people do? Is they stop and they look back and they reflect on their lives? And, and let's just think about it. Let's just think about, like, where, you've, where you were and where you are. Like, you, you had it all. Gamaliel was always, you were always his favorite. Like you had a knack for this and you had a passion for this. And then you had that one experience on the Damascus Road. And then I just want you to think about all that you've had to go through since then. And what is it going to take to wake you up? What is it going to take for you to be able to read like, there's just no way this is God's plan for you. None of this makes sense. Like I get it. There's hardships. I get it. I get it. I'm not saying that you can't have a difficult day or a difficult, but a difficult decade and then another difficult decade only to cap that off with one last difficult decade before they chop off your head. This is the direction that you really want. I mean, I just need you to think through this. Like I'm saying this for your benefit and for those around you, like no one seems to be winning from this. It just seems to cause hardship after hardship after hardship Tell me how this is God's plan. I just wonder if anyone from Paul's past ever just stopped to try to get a gut check for him. I think that if they had, though, the Apostle Paul, who understands not only how God works, but he's had some very real, and I don't want to make light of them, very real experiences with Jesus. And he does have within him the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the Apostle Paul is going, yeah, I've just, I've got, I'm, not, I'm stubborn. The Apostle Paul never says that his faithfulness is tied to some kind of a personality trait. No, it is, the, it is the appearing of Jesus Christ. It is the reminding of the Holy Spirit. It's him going back and searching the scriptures and seeing over and over and over again God's faithfulness. That's what's holding me in this. But I think the Apostle Paul would also say, listen, there's just, do, do you remember how fickle people can be? Like, I know my life has been hard, but do you remember just how fickle people can be? Like, what do you want me to do? You want me to start trusting something other than, other than God who appeared to me? Other than what the scriptures clearly teach? Other than the spirit that now resides in me? What do you want me to do? Read tea leaves? Like, I'm not giving this up. Do you understand how fickle people can be? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says, it's one of my favorite, um, it's one of my favorite Proverbs. I won't say one of my favorite Bible verses, but it's one of my favorite Proverbs. And I use it whenever I find myself looking at life or looking at circumstances or even just deep thoughts that are kind of churning around in my heart and in my mind. Proverbs 16, 25 says that there is a way inside of us that really seems right. Like it just makes sense. Like I, you almost can't explain it any other way. It's that nod of recognition and that nod of agreement when we all just look at what life circumstances are, we look at a, a position in the world and we just go, there's no other way anybody could look at this and see in any other way than the way that we see it, right? And the Bible says, that way, the way that we all agree upon, leads to death. 
Let me say it again. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads only to death. I think Paul could use that verse if a friend came to him in the prison in Jerusalem at Antonius Fortress. He said, listen, I get it. Like, I get where you're coming from. Like, my life is a lot in many ways so much more difficult. And I've had to endure more than I ever imagined I would have to endure. You're right. My life is going in a completely different direction. But remember, like, proverb teaches us That the way that seems right for people can also be the way that leads to death. Essentially what he's saying is that just people left to ourselves, whether individually or collectively, can't be trusted to the same degree that God's word can be trusted, that the confirmation of God's spirit can be trusted. That's what he's saying. And this text is, is a classic one of those texts. I, I love the, the, the fickleness that seems to exist with so many people. And we see it ultimately with the people of Malta. Jesus warned that there would be fickle people around us. But more than that, can I just say this? Instead of just saying people are fickle and you go, yes, they so are. Can we just stop and say that I can be fickle? Like, not people. I'm not talking about you. You can be so fickle. <laughs> no, I can be. My, my tastes can change like that. Um, what, what can begin with passion, just with a couple of serious, you know, overwhelming moments, can quickly cause me to wonder or to doubt. So it's not just people. Like, it's, it's us. And it's not just us. Like, sometimes it's me. Jesus points this out. Matthew chapter 11. Take a look at this statement. This just gives you, again, kind of the heart of of what people can be like. And so the Apostle Paul, he's in prison. He's getting ready to go to, to Rome. And he's got all these difficult circumstances. Drew read them. How is he going to process that? In part, it's these, these undergirding foundational words of Jesus Christ that help him process difficulties and hardships. They, they help them understand like why and how storms exist and ships break up. And they even explain that when you think everything is fine, like a snake comes out of, of, out of, the, out of a pile of wood and then bites you. And not only that, it's a poisonous one. I knew it. I knew it would be a poisonous one. Wouldn't be just some simple snake that's just angry. No, it had to be a poisonous one that's going to make me swell up and die. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? Um, And by the way, I I think probably every generation. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Basically, this kind of describes a a, a large portion, portion of my life um, where you know you can imagine like those times when I, I really just I just want to have fun. I just want to have fun. Remember those times you want to have fun, celebrate. Come on, let's celebrate. The, you know that kind of a CC in the CC in the Sunshine Gang, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Who? 
Cool in the gang. There we go. I needed Paul on that one. Cool in the gang. Celebrate. Let's dance. This is kind of how it's going. And then all of a sudden, it's like a junior high dance where nobody's dancing. Just kind of standing around the outside of the gym looking at each other. And so we decided to play a dirge. Now, this, this is kind of what I could really get into in my, my junior high. I don't need your help on this one, Paul. I still remember taking my sister's copy of an Eric Carmen album and just sitting there and kind of in the middle of our living room, all by myself, don't want to be all by my... My mom's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, you don't understand, Mom. You don't, like, sixth grade is hard. I'm alone. And I could somehow get into this. I mean, it literally, it's like, are you okay? We, we call it hormones. <laughs> it's just all over the map. Like, we just can't please you. You want a song? We sang a song that was supposed to be happy and exciting. You didn't like that. So we decided to sing this other one, and now all of a sudden you don't want that. Like, what do you want? And Jesus says, that is what this generation is like. And then he gives a great example to this. He gives two people, himself being one, the other one being John the Baptist. Look at verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, meaning he's the one dressed, you know, kind of ragged clothing. John's the one kind of, we need to deny ourselves. He's out living in the desert. And they go, something's wrong with him. Like, why are you always negative? Why don't you have anything positive to say, John? I'm just tired of hearing that. Jesus comes along, and much different. It says, and then the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they don't say, wow, somebody who gets it. No. Look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John preaches nothing but hell and brimstone. Jesus preaches welcome to the party, and, and everybody in their right season just really can't stand either. And Jesus says, this is kind of pulling from the Proverbs, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Um, another translation for this is that uh, uh, wisdom is proved right by her children, which means this, that something like deeper than just a, a, a stopwatch, just a, a news article from a moment in a person's life really defines who they are and how they're, how, they're, how they're doing. That when I ask how you are and you say, well, I need to realize like things could change. And when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, things could change. This back and forth and back and forth and back and forth is just foolish. And what can possibly steady us? And Jesus points out that there is a, something wrong with us. And the Bible would actually say that who Jesus is, his life and his purpose is what gives us like center. It's what gives us meaning. It's what keeps us from being just kind of up and down with the storm. Kind of evaluating everything day by day or moment by moment. In the end, not trying to evaluate week by week whether or not I feel like going to church and singing to God this week. It's been a hard week. I need, to, I need, to, I need a break. But in the end, it, it gives a much deeper, a much more fulfilling understanding of life. 
And yet, literally, when you look at the fickleness that exists, you have in Acts chapter 28 this amazing story, beginning in verse 6. I know Drew already read it, but I just I find this to be absolutely fascinating. Paul gathers a bundle of sticks, put them on the fire. A viper comes out because of the heat and fastens on his hand. And then when the native people see that the creature is hanging from his hand, they say, no doubt this man is a murderer. It's the only way to explain it. You don't escape something like that. Because though he had escaped from the sea, justice, capital J, it's like they believe in karma. Like it's just going to come back and bite you, literally. Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shakes off the creature into the fire, suffers no harm. They're waiting for him to swell up, suddenly fall down dead. And when he's not falling down dead and they wait a long time, no misfortune comes to him. They change their minds and they say, he's not a murderer. They say he's a god. They went from murderer to god around a campfire. Same fire. We think you're a murderer. I mean a god. That's what we would say too. I find it very interesting that it's, it's in moments like this that I'm reminded of, of, of people in my life who, who really desire to have, um, to not be fickle. They want peace. They want purpose. And, and they even can come to a place like this. I, th- I think of a young man in my past, who uh, really did not find a lot of friendships, relationships that had deep significance. And so he began to find it in like a church. I I meet him in his college years and he just, I I just really am looking for like something bigger than myself. He knew everything to say. And I, I always would offer him Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the answer. It's, it's Jesus. He knew enough to look me in the eye and go, yeah, it's Jesus. But as I would look into his eyes, I could tell, like, he wasn't really there. It's like he knew what to say, but his heart wasn't really there. Like, he wanted, and you're, you're never allowed to say this out loud, but he wanted more than that. He wanted Jesus would be really, really good as like a filler in and around the edges. But what I really need is, and he didn't want bad things. Like he didn't want to be alone. He wanted somebody who would love him. He wanted to start a family. He wanted to just have a, just a normal life and like, like that I had. And so we would spend a few months together and, you know, looking at the Bible and having spiritual conversations, and then all of a sudden he would disappear. This happened about three times, actually. And all of a sudden he just disappears. I'm calling him up. Hey, I miss seeing you. How are you doing? Actually doing really, really good. <laughs> doing really, really good. I have a, guess what? I've got a girlfriend. Um, and actually we really need to get to church. I'd love to bring her by so that you could meet her. And he would just kind of disappear for like a few weeks sometimes months, sometimes years. And then all of a sudden I would see him. Hey, how are things going? Terrible, man, just terrible. What happened? And he would describe some typical relational shipwreck. And so he came back here and I would meet with him again. We'd kind of start over. Listen, I get it. I I understand the temptation and I understand the need. I'm telling you, Jesus really is enough. He really is enough. And he would say, yeah, I so know that now. 
I so know that now. And I could see it, same thing, right? He knows what to say, but his heart's not catching up. It's, 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 it's like last week with baby dedication. Do you promise to raise these children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and teach them to be devoted to Jesus Christ of all, of all things? Uh-huh. And they're, like, they're new to the parenting thing. Um, and, and right now they just can't imagine this baby asking for anything more than a, a glass of milk. Now, can I stay up and watch a little bit of television? Like they have no idea what's in store. Well, no, they know. And, and that's why it's, I, I get it. Like I really do understand that I know that Jesus is the most important thing. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But it would also be really, really good if, like, if my, my son could like, like be good at like a sport, like a team sport, like a, a really good team sport where he could have an opportunity to have like friends. And, and that would, that's really, really important because it's good that young people have those kinds of relationships and they can, they can just have self-esteem because that's really, really, really important. They need to have a, a good, healthy understanding of who they are. We don't want them to be sad or depressed. Now, a little bit of sadness is actually really good, but you know what I'm talking about? Like these are normal things and I want them to study hard and I want them to get good grades so that they could then go to college and everything would work out well, right? Like this isn't, I'm not crazy, right? And by the way, the whole way along, I, I really do hope that Jesus is kind of the one that's at the bottom of that. I really, really do. Now, time-wise, we're going to probably focus more on, on, on teaching and education and ACT and um, making sure that they're really, really good at hitting a ball or catching a ball or, or whatever we do with sport things. And that's what we want most. But in the end, I, I'm all for the Jesus being the foundation, and it's, I know what to say, and you can just kind of get a sense that, but in the end, I, I don't know if I really know what the commitment is going to be like. That's what fickle looks like. That's why I can say to you, like, I'm fickle. It's not just silly. It's when life really kicks you hard. That's why I love who Drew and I were talking about the details in this. Chapter 27, those details, Drew was telling me that he was, he was kind of, you know, Drew, he would be one of the guys that would research it because he's going to have to read it. You know what I'm saying? Love these, love these things about Drew. And there was a gentleman, famous gentleman, and he said that that text, chapter 27, really helped them believe that this must be true because that's a lot of details to just make up. See, it's just the reality of that. It's that, that, that kind of thing. And again, Paul seems like he's got it straight, but everybody around him is this close to going, murderer, God, murderer, God. Uh, it's, it's like the little kid who, when they're eight or nine or 10 or 12 or 15, are saying, I'm ready to follow Jesus Christ, give him my absolute life. You know, it's that week of camp where you just feel more safe and more connected. I mean, you're having a lot of those. Do you guys remember what it's like? And, and you just, you really like it. It's like, man, I kind of wish all of it was like this. Like, I was a great Christian, like when I was surrounded by other Christians. I was just really, really bad at it when others showed up. The temptations were too close, and I was at times too weak. Is that kind of fickle? I just wish I were Paul. 
I just wish I were Paul. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, if, if I, he were to talk to me, he would say, listen, like, I, I had to struggle in many ways like with what you, everyone else has to struggle with. And I know you probably think that like what made everything good for me was a Damascus Road experience or a couple of times where Jesus Christ appeared for me, but notice how many times where I don't use that as the reason for the hope that I have. Hmm. Read enough of the Apostle Paul, you realize that there's lots of things that are holding him together. So that when he is going through his life and it is just prison to death threats to being beaten to getting on a ship, to having a shipwreck, to being rescued, to being bit by a snake. Are you kidding me? That the being bitten by a snake wasn't the last straw because it seems like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it seem like it? He doesn't have a last straw. The Apostle Paul doesn't have a last straw. And why is that? And, and we, we might sit here, and it might be even easy for you to say, well, it's because he's just so spiritual. I, I don't know if that's what he would say. But I see in the life of the Apostle Paul that every time he could have easily focused on difficult circumstances, painful circumstances, shipwrecks and snake bites, he decided instead to focus on a faithful God. He is holding on not to the fact that everything is going to work out well, but just there are these simple truths. Acts chapter 23, verse 11, take courage. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And Paul's not going. And so I know I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm really looking forward to that endeavor. As much as it is, like I know this isn't going to end anywhere else, I know God is going to get me there. I know God is going to bring me through. Again, what Drew is reading in Acts chapter 27. Look at verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith that if we just persevere, everything is going to work out great. I just, I believe that every evening has a morning. No. Take men heart, take, take, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, which is what? You're not going to die. You're going to testify in Rome. It doesn't mention about the rest of the difficulties that he's about to have. Snake bite, nowhere in the vicinity, but I do know that it's going to happen. I have faith in God. And that's what the Apostle Paul does. So much so that when he lands on the island, he's actually able to minister to them. Isn't that not amazing? All of these difficulties, and hey, by the way, my father-in-law's sick. Okay, bring him over here. We can. God is so good. He can do these things. The Apostle Paul has this continual faith in God, faith in God, faith in God. Which, by the way, this morning, I, I don't know where you are on the spectrum. Like maybe you're at that somewhere between a shipwreck and a snake bite. Like you're one snake bite away to going, I don't think I can do this. Like maybe you're that person that just last week dedicated your child and you really want, I think this is so true, I really want 
to put God first into my family. I really want to put God first in my marriage. I really want to raise my children. Like, is it wrong for me to want my other things for my kids? Not at all. I swear to you, not at all. But I just, I know what it can be like and how we can begin to deceive ourselves and thinking what we are doing is one thing when in the end we're trading it out for something else. Here's one way that you can just kind of take a, just a quick measure of your heart. You can ask yourself this question. That in the regular just comings and goings of your life as you reflect on God and who he is and what he has done for you, do you find in God the meaning of all things? Like when you think about all those wonderful things that you have in your life, is God the meaning behind it? Is he the one that gives strength and sustenance and endurance? It is because of him and for him that I live and that I move. Or are you one that just really sees God as the means towards what you, what you really want. God becomes the means to gain some things, like the young man that kept coming to church just thinking that somehow if he does his time or just begins to be good enough or something that, that maybe I can make these things click together. Like, do you have Jesus Christ as the meaning of your life or is he like waiting in the wings like a backup quarterback? Plan B. See, the reason why Paul is so strong and so committed is because Jesus Christ is everything to him. And by the way, you, you might have actually found out this morning, wow, I, I think I'm more of a Jesus is my backup quarterback person than I thought. I never even intended to be this. Well, the good news is, is that God's grace through gave a bunch of examples of, um, it's, but it's good that you're here. Let me tell you, if you are figuring out right now, God is more of a means to another end than my ultimate means, well, then the good news is, let me tell you about how much God loves you and cares for you and made a way for you. If you find out later on this week, man, my life is falling apart and I thought I was building it around Jesus and I wasn't, well, the good news is, is that you have no idea how much God loves you and cares for you. You didn't have to have it all figured out today. Like maybe you don't even know right now that you are one snake bite away. When you get bit this week, turn to Jesus. When you find out you're not as spiritual as you thought or you're not as committed as you thought or you're not as good as you thought, or as, then, you, then you return to him. That's what the Apostle Paul would call us. The Apostle Paul wouldn't write some song, Be More Like Me, no, he would write some song that says, I really want you to know that Jesus is worth it. Acts chapter 28, verse 14. I know it's next week's message, but I had, to, I had to use it. There is this wonderful statement. It says this. And so we finally came to Rome. I love that statement. Finally, Not how we thought, not how I thought, not how anybody thought, but we finally got to Rome. It's almost like that's Luke's going, and God proved himself yet once again. Well, Paul, are you happy? Are you, are you satisfied? I think one of the keys to someone like the Apostle Paul, and he's not the only one, is I think the Apostle Paul would say, listen, here's the, here's the secret to life. I can't be satisfied by anything in this world. What ultimately satisfied me is not here. Me having relationships, me being um, successful, me being like none of those things can truly satisfy what really ultimately satisfies me 
is God. That's how you handle going from shipwrecks to snake bites. Fully and ultimately, finding your greatest meaning and purpose in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you have done and what you've accomplished. Thank you for who you are. And Father, I pray that we, not trying to be like the Apostle Paul, would find great joy in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. God, we ask this because we need the strength to do it. And therefore, I pray you would be the one to provide it. God, strengthen our immature hearts. In Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.